Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. I'm Jess Baldry, and today we take a look beyond the borders of Luxembourg, Europe, and even planet Earth. So I became interested in space uh, since uh, the earliest I can remember, actually. I remember looking up in the sky and thinking, wow, uh, what, what, do we, what do we mean here? What are we doing here you know, as human beings? And uh, why are we on this planet? And what exactly is our purpose? And these are very complicated questions for uh, you know, a child of that age, but uh, I knew straight away that I had to do something with it, with this passion and this interest, and I had to pursue it within my academics and my profession as well. That was Federico Giusto, a Luxembourg aeronautical engineer who is one of the 65 Luxembourg applicants and 22,000 European candidates vying in the European Space Agency's latest astronaut recruitment round. Federico, you are 27, which makes you probably one of the youngest candidates, and you were just 14 during the last recruitment round, which was in 2008. So what makes you a good candidate? I'm at the right age, at the right level of my profession, as well as with my, my extracurriculars and the languages that I speak. Thank you to the Luxembourg system that basically brought me up, you know, with my secondary education as well and my further education, which I also continued in the UK, the United Kingdom. So uh, I think that I meet all the minimum requirements, which are the years of experience, the physical ability, which uh, thankfully uh, all hold me up nowadays. And uh, as well as that, uh, what I do outside of my academics and my profession. So I do a lot of uh, courses to continue my leadership and managerial uh, uh, skills. And I also do a lot of mentoring and supporting to uh, the younger generations, you know, to, uh, to basically get into the sector within Luxembourg and beyond. I think that I can bring a very interesting uh, uh, view to, to this role and a very interesting set of skills, which would be uh, unique moving forward. And that's what's really exciting, that in the future, astronauts uh, will not be coming exclusively from the military or the Navy. They will have to have a level of discipline which is unique for most people. But we will need as many backgrounds as possible to be able to establish ourselves outside of, uh, of this planet. So uh, I think a profile like mine would be uh, uh, definitely beneficial to that because I can think in different uh, mindsets. You know, I can come up with different solutions to different problems in different environments and in different stress levels by myself or also with a team. When we spoke before this interview, um, Federica, you told me that you, you and your wife were expecting your first child. Congratulations. So what does your wife and your family say about all of this? It is something very important. It's a very important question to ask because, uh, as you know, uh, this and many other, of course, roles and uh, responsibilities require a lot of sacrifice, a lot of traveling, uh, a lot of time away from home. So it is a decision that in the end uh, has to be made. And for us, it was made together. It wasn't made by, by myself. And it is something that would affect, you know, the proceedings of a family in, uh, in the early years of uh, our daughter's life. So thankfully, I see this and my wife and my family sees this in way as an opportunity rather than, you know, sacrifices. I see this as an opportunity to also demonstrate to my daughter that uh, there is a, a chance to follow your dreams and make them become true, not just in a vision kind of sense, but also as a profession and something that can really be helpful to, uh, you know, to society and to the humankind. A lot of technology that we have developed in space has now become everyday use. On, on earth, you know, things that we use in our phone, things that we use in our cars. Uh, so we are not just talking about the future of humankind, but we're also talking about helping us now on this planet. So I have a great support group, not just my family, of course, but also all the uh, uh, people that I mentor, which are fantastic pupils from schools and also from university, uh, and all of my colleagues, which are very supportive in, uh, in iSpace here in uh, Luxembourg. Some of the listeners might be thinking, OK, but what's the connection between Luxembourg and space besides expensive real estate? 
But Luxembourg does have a space programme that it's been running since 2016. And even before that, we had SES, which mm -hmm. was established in the middle of the 1980s. So can you tell us more about this uh, space programme in Luxembourg? The government set up the Luxembourg Space Agency a couple of years ago, which are now directly overseeing all of the activities with regards to uh, the new space ecosystem. I think Luxembourg has done a uh, really remarkable job not just in setting up, of course, the ecosystem and the resources, because that's what it's needed to basically as a foundation uh, for this particular sector, but also to foster the competencies and also to uh, lead the uh, academic institutions and the schools to understand that we need to build from the inside as well as getting the talent from outside. That's something that I was very fortunate uh, to support in the last couple of months, some opportunities with the Luxembourg Space Center and the Luxembourg Space Agency uh, within schools themselves, you know, presenting about the ecosystem, presenting about the job that we do and really uh, bringing up a spark and a bright spark in uh, these people's eyes and seeing that this is actually something that can be done within the small yet powerful <laughs> country of, of Luxembourg. So I think they personally, I believe they have done uh, huge strides compared to other countries. They really in the last couple of years have uh, been uniquely investing in, in every sense on a, on a global scale almost. They're part also of the Artemis Accords, which is the NASA Accords to go to the moon. They, uh, they have partnerships with companies all over Europe and all over the world. So it's a lot of uh, effort being put, and I'm very proud to be part of it and contribute to it. And I cannot wait to see what, uh, what we're going to do next. So the selection process for this current recruitment drive is going to be enormous. When the application process closed, they counted 22,000 applications. And the European Space Agency will now do a selection. Now, even if you don't make it through the process, Federico, this isn't the end of the story for you, is it? Right now I work in iSpace Europe, which is a startup that is a subsidiary to a Japanese company called iSpace Inc, who is going to attempt next year the uh, world's first commercial lunar landing. So uh, we're doing something uh, absolutely insane. I still think after a couple of years working there, and now I understand the technical side of it, having worked there for a while, but I still do believe there is a little bit of magic involved, which is absolutely incredible what they are uh, doing there in Japan, as well as here in, uh, in Europe and recently in the newly opened US office. We are seeing a rise of the private sector as well with private missions. So not just government-led or agency-led opportunities, but also ones where private companies and commercial companies will have their own programs and their own uh, missions. We are seeing that with SpaceX. We're seeing that with Blue Origin. Actually, Blue Origin's uh, owner, Jeff Bezos, will be launching in a couple of weeks in uh, the New Shepard uh, rocket. So that's, uh, you know, the beginning of space tourism, as somebody might call it. But also missions for science, you know, missions that will be uh, funded by private entities to basically achieve specific scientific goals. So it's something that I believe will become more natural as we move towards the next couple of years of the sector. It will not be, uh, first of all, a huge investment in terms of time and money, as it might be nowadays. It will become uh, more part of the general ecosystem that we're working in now. And I'm not going to say routine, but we were saying the same about uh, landing rockets, and SpaceX managed to do it a couple of years ago. So it's the younger people that are entering the sector now they will really make this happen. You know, I have no doubt uh, in my heart that uh, this decade we're going back to the moon. Multiple of us are going back to the moon, not just to, uh, you know, take the pictures and say that we've been there, but to set up and uh, start contributing to an ecosystem and a value chain that's outside of, of Earth. So a value, actually adding value to, to us. And I'm also sure that my daughter's generation will go to Mars. Lucy van der Tass, you led the promotion of the recruitment drive as head of talent acquisition for the programme. Clearly, the call for applications has captured the public's imagination in terms of fulfilling childhood dreams and having a tangible impact on human progress. I think listeners would love to hear more about what the job entails, because it's not just about floating around in the ISS and live blogging for schools, is it? 
I think the first thing we can say that astronauts spend a large part of their life in training, certainly the active astronauts. And once they've been selected, they have to go into one and a half years of basic training. And there's all sorts of things that you can imagine about that type of training. One of the things they'll have to do is lessons in Russian. They will also do training for a private pilot's license and then survival techniques. Then they go on to what we call the pre-assignment training, which is when they learn the specifics of operating the International Space Station. Uh, they may support other colleague astronauts who are actually up in the ISS. And I would expect for the longer term missions, they'll also be looking at training on the gateway, but we're, we're not there yet. The gateway will not start to be launched until 2024, 2025. Then once they've been assigned to a mission, they start the mission specific training. And that's when they learn about the experiments they're going to be working with and how to operate those experiments. And all in all, we're looking at, I would say, because the, the mission specific training is one and a half years. So you're looking at four to five years of training. And then obviously the mission specific training repeats itself each time somebody's assigned to a, another mission. Astronauts are natural ambassadors for the organization they work for. So in this case, the European Space Agency. So they get called upon to do a lot of work with the public, the general public, with the media. So that's a large part of what they do. And then in between missions, they do get the opportunity to work on, on projects and to, to do other activities. For instance, one of the astronauts, Alexander Guest, actually went down to Concordia and spent time with the mission down there in, in Antarctica. Now, the number of applications was enormous, over 22,000 compared to, I think it was 8,413 in, in 2008, which was when you last did the recruitment drive. So why do you think that there was such an astounding response? That's very difficult to put your finger down exactly on why so many people applied. And I don't know that we will ever know for sure, but I have certain theories. I think, first of all, uh, social media is very much part of our lives. And I think the reach has been huge as a result of the astronaut selection program. I think too, it's a dream job. It really appeals to the imagination of many, many people. And the astronaut selection criteria are becoming more and more accessible to more and more people. We've, we're no longer in the days of young fighter pilots, test pilots, uh, the, uh, male. We're, we're opening it up much wider. and. Who knows, maybe at some point in the future, the STEM requirements may long, no longer be necessary. And I think that that plays a role too. And I personally also think, you know, we're coming out of a couple of years of COVID, which has restricted our lives to a huge degree. And I think people are so happy to have positive news, something that they can really dream about that really appeals to them. And Many of the people, I mean, I've been contacted by a lot of the candidates along the way, not all 22,000, obviously, but quite a lot of them, and they've been preparing for quite some time. People already started asking us, or asking me, in fact, back in the last autumn, September, October, we've heard that you may be announcing a selection for 2021. When do you think that will be? What can we do? Et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's been quite inspiring, yes. And the pool of candidates, of course, is also extremely diverse, I believe. You've got 24% um, of them have identified as female, and then a large number also applied under the Parastronaut Feasibility Project. So can you tell us more about this, this latter project? Yes, this is a very interesting project, and it's a first. This is the very first time that any agency, any space agency, has opened up the possibility for people with a disability to apply. 
We have made it quite limited at this point in time, but the idea is for the selected candidate to work together with ESA to, to look at what is needed in order to adapt the vehicles, the, the equipment, the spacesuits, et cetera, et cetera, to people with a disability. And right now we're looking at people with a leg length, significant leg length difference, who are one meter 30 or shorter, or who have uh, lost limbs below the knee, one or both legs. It's very exciting. I mean, for ESA, we're in a bit of a special case because we don't have our own launch vehicles. We depend on other agencies for that. But we felt by opening up the door and taking this first small step, we can lead the way to or prepare the ground for much bigger steps in the future. That's fantastic. Now, you're hiring four to six career astronauts and 20 reserve astronauts. So these are the official terms that you use. So maybe you can explain for the listeners, what's the difference between these two types of roles? Well, the four to six career astronauts will come onto the ESA payroll. They will receive a contract from ESA and they will be dedicated to ESA. And they will go straight into the training that I described and they will move forward and they're pretty much guaranteed to have a mission. The reserve astronauts, on the other hand, they will have a link with ESA. So there will be a letter of agreement between them and ESA. They will maintain their employment conditions with their current employers and they will be called upon to do some training to keep active in the coming years but obviously what will depend on whether there are other missions coming up and last time we ended up with far more missions than we had expected going into the previous astronaut selection so I think there's a reasonable chance that uh, a number of these people on the reserve will actually get to fly. I understand that there is not a country quota in the screening process so what will ESA be looking for in the candidates Lucy? To start off with, I'll say what we're not looking for. We're not looking for supermen or superwomen who are the best at everything. Astronauts need to be good at a wide range of activities. They need to be physically fit, they need to have good motor coordination, and they have to be comfortable underwater. Funnily enough, because most of the training, or a large degree of training, takes place underwater, because it's one of the best environments for simulating long-term microgravity. We have the parabolic flights and we have other ways to give people access to microgravity while on the ground, but that lasts a couple of seconds. And underwater, it can simulate the spacewalks, which are up to six, seven hours. But I would also like to stress the personality aspects because these are probably more important. First of all, astronauts need to be team players and they need to be able to get along with other people. That's really critical if you're going to spend months in close confinement with others. And they have to stay calm under pressure so that they can take the right steps in an emergency. They have to have good communication skills. I spoke about being an ambassador. And they need a healthy dose of patience. It can take time before that final mission or that first mission is assigned to you. So the shortlisted candidates are going to go through a number of tests. Can you tell us a little bit about the different phases of tests, please? There will be six stages in total, and we're going through first stage now, which is the pre-selection on the basis of the submitted documents, the application, the CV, and the motivation letter. So we have a whole team of recruiters going through all these papers now as we speak. Uh, Some people will have been automatically screened out already on the basis of their questions. We had certain hard requirements, such a master in STEM, and people have still submitted their application even if they didn't meet that criteria. But obviously, with the huge number of applicants that we have, we can we can be quite selective. So the idea at this point is to down select to about 1,500 
candidates who will go to the first stage of actual testing. So this phase consists of cognitive, technical, motor coordination and personality tests. And then we'll go through a number of further stages, which will also down select the numbers. So we have an assessment center stage, then the fourth stage of medical tests. And then we go to the panel interviews. And there we're expecting to have around 40 candidates. And the final stage is an interview with our director general. Now, with 22,000 plus applicants, we know there's going to be a few disappointed wannabe astronauts, but they shouldn't be disheartened because presumably this is not the only opportunity to work with ESA. No, absolutely not. We're going to be looking for a lot of new colleagues in the coming years. We have a number of people retiring between now and 2030. We're calling it the retirement wave because it's a total of 44%, which is quite significant. And there's going to be lots of very, very interesting jobs. Lucy, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on delano.lu.